Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Saturday, October 7th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. History in the House as several Republicans successfully oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We all kind of woke up yesterday morning thinking, you know, surely he'll find another way to pull another rabbit out of his hat. And then Democrats were the ones who came out and said, we're not going to save him. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. With no funding for Ukraine in a short-term spending measure and a growing number of Republicans questioning or opposed to Ukraine aid, What happens if American support for the country ends during this war? He's not going to change what he wants, whether Biden or Trump or somebody else gets elected. He's going to be continuing to try to do the same thing. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. It came suddenly. The vote on the House floor to remove Kevin McCarthy as speaker took less than an hour. But it was an event building for months, since January, when McCarthy won the gavel on the 15th round of voting. You know, if you have to lose for something, I will always lose for the country. It it, it is a much better battle to have. McCarthy, during a lengthy news conference with reporters in the aftermath of a vote that ended his speakership less than a year after it began. I leave the speakership with a sense of pride, accomplishment, and yes, optimism. From the day I entered politics, my mission has always been to make tomorrow better than today. I fought for what I believe in, and I believe in this country of America. The motion to vacate the procedural tool used by Florida Republican Matt Gates to trigger a vote to remove McCarthy was long threatened. McCarthy agreed to a rule making it easier for his own removal as a concession to win enough conservative support to become speaker. And that is why, in many ways, this was both sudden and slow to build. As much as this was months in the making, it all feels like it happened pretty abruptly, pretty fast. Mike Ricci is a Republican strategist who worked on Capitol Hill as the chief speechwriter and deputy communications director for former Speaker John Boehner and then as communications director for former Speaker Paul Ryan. I spoke with Mike the day after the vote to remove McCarthy as House Speaker. We all mm-hmm. kind of woke up yesterday morning thinking, you know, surely he'll find another way to pull another rabbit over out of his hat. And then Democrats were the ones who came out and said, we're not going to save him. And I think that was the other shoe here that had not dropped yet, was whether Democrats, even Matt Gates, expected Democrats to step up and save him. For institutionalists like Steny Hoyer, even, to vote for this, uh, I, I never, uh, I just could not have envisioned a day like that. The Matt Gates sort of pulling out this bazooka finally and using it, that I expected. But for, I just found, I thought that at the end of the day, something different would happen with with how it shook out for the Democratic side. Why do you think Democrats didn't bail him out? Uh, I think I think this is this stuff's immensely personal. Uh, It 
hard for Jeffries, who obviously wants to be speaker himself. And some folks would speculate is still sort of taking marching orders from Nancy Pelosi. Uh, tough for him to, he tried to create a more cordial relationship with Kevin McCarthy, but I, I just don't think he had any room to even allow a few moderate Democrats to take a walk or to vote present. Uh, they just, there was a, a lack of trust and uh, you may have heard that there was, uh, they were mad about some some things Kevin said on television. And I know that may sound uh, silly or petty, but these are, these are sensitive souls and uh, no slight is, is too small sometimes. And just uh, with John Boehner and Paul Ryan and others, there was always some semblance of trust and kind of institutional understanding. And that clearly just broke down here and, and it brought us to the the consequences that we're seeing unfold today. You know, it's it's interesting you use the word trust because I did see that statement for, from Democrats and they made clear that they had some trust issues with Kevin McCarthy. But that's what we've heard from some of the Republicans as well, and not just Matt Gates and, and those kind of that were pushing this. But that was sort of the explanation that that more moderate member like Nancy Mace had, had offered, that she kind of had lost confidence and trust in, in Speaker McCarthy. Um, what is the cha- I mean, speakers have a ton of responsibilities, right, especially when it's a narrow majority. You've been in offices that have had narrow majorities and you're trying to look out for every lawmaker's best interest. Um, was that burden just too much, given the makeup of, of the House? Well, I think well, I think a couple of things. First, you really hit it on the head talking about January and what happened. The seeds were sort of planted. You, you may remember there was talk about a January agreement. And many of your colleagues were trying to pin down whether there was even a written agreement or Mm -hmm. there was any kind of actual terms. And people kind of moved on from that. But there was always a lingering sense of, you know, what happened here, that there is confusion over even what they agreed to. And different people had different understandings, different members. Nancy Mace had one understanding. Matt Gates had another. And sometimes that, uh, for lack of a better term, that original sin is what comes back to haunt you. And Mm -hmm. so maybe if if in all that chaos out of it had come some memorandum or something, some understanding that the speaker had been able to point back to and have a stronger, but it was always, he said, she said, he said, and that uh, in and of itself uh, just sowed distrust. And so I think uh, again, the, the little, the little slights like that, they just can really come back, uh, come back at the end out of nowhere. I mean, people were talking about how Kevin McCarthy treated them on a phone call, how his staff treated, you know, their staff. It, it, it's fascinating how all of this this plays out and, and it's it's personal. But, you know, it, it's an extraordinary accomplishment in the sense that for the Speaker McCarthy was able to unite 90, 95, 96% of his conference. But even in these times with how small his majority was, you know, Speaker Boehner, at one point, we had a majority of about 245 members. I mean, can you imagine the breathing room there? Uh, whereas now yeah. you're down to these, you're in the 220s. So even, and look, it's a fine line between, you know, being in these situations, you're always thinking about, okay, how do I isolate? we got to isolate Gates. we got to isolate these people. It's just a fine line between isolating them and antagonizing them. And it's just a balance that the Speaker and his team tried to strike up until the very last second. You mentioned uh, the the majority that, that Speaker Boehner once had. The other thing that Speaker Boehner had was a little bit more wiggle room when it came to even how these motions to vacate move forward. One of the major concessions, maybe the most major concession in retrospect that that McCarthy had to deliver was the single member motion to vacate the chair. Um, 
is that something that, that you think is is around the stay or has this process maybe made that so poisonous that, that it's not going to be sort of part of, of what leadership does moving forward, sure. Republican or Democrat? Well, it's important to, for the historical context. The reason the motion to vacate is so extraordinarily and so rarely used is because it's not meant to be a recall tool for a speaker you're not happy with. It's meant to be used if a speaker has lost a governing majority. And we can argue over whether that's the case here in a in a sense, but it was not really for this purpose. And so one problem here is we've gotten far away from what was supposed to be for. It wasn't supposed to be for a few disgruntled members to, you know, you elect a speaker, that's the speaker. It may not be the speaker you want, but it's the speaker you have. And so we've gotten away from that. And uh, I know Speaker Pelosi made some changes when she became speaker. Obviously, it's a different environment. But uh, the the challenge here, Jared, is the new speaker, whoever it is, whoever it may be, has so many, it's going to have so many competing priorities that uh, it would take a lot of, um, it, it would take a lot of good faith to get any kind of deal to change these rules. But yes, it's something that the House, both, both the majority and the minority should look at because the point really is not to give one member uh, such uh, outsized power like that. So let's talk about the future moving forward. It sounds like the House wants, at least the Republicans in the House, want to fill this this vacancy, I guess we call it that, um, as quickly as possible. They, they could start that process early next week. Do right. you think that's going to be clean, or is this going to kind of be a repeat where we go a few days, maybe longer, without having any sort of clear guidance as to who is going to be the the you know sworn in elected speaker of the house? Yeah, it's you know this process of leadership elections it usually takes place. I mean, it takes place over the course of months, if not years. People yeah. spend years building up towards running for these positions, and so. Even when Speaker Boehner stood down, he allowed about two to two and a half weeks for this process to unfold. Here, we just don't have that luxury for several reasons. But to have all this occur on such a compressed timeline, it's a lot of phone calls. It's all very helter-skelter, different rumors going around, different names being mentioned. Members are going to surprise you out of nowhere with asks that the candidates can't, can't possibly abide. People are going to want things on Ukraine. They're going to want things on, on government funding. So uh, to your point, the immediate business before the House is the point of this law. It was not about these political crises. The reason we have a sort of a caretaker speaker right now is for continuity of government purposes. So the point is the point is that uh, Speaker McHenry can't go back to the floor and try to do other business. He had the immediate mm -hmm. business before the House is electing a speaker. So obviously, if he doesn't see a path, he could ask the conference to elect, he could be elected speaker himself for the time being to have the full powers of the office. But uh, it's it's very possible it will linger. Um, I, I, I tend to think that it, it won't go past next week. But remember, then there will be if it lets, for instance, if the majority of Steve Scalise is elected, mm -hmm. you know, that would trigger other leadership elections. So right. uh, we could be looking at one to two weeks of these proxy proxy battles, even as we face some pretty serious uh, funding deadlines. But I have to tell you, you know, sometimes when these things happen, Jared, it's like they happen and the next day people kind of shake it off and there's a lot of muscle memory and people just go right back into their, okay, this is a leadership election. We're going to have some forums. We're going to talk it out. But uh, the, the sentiments I'm hearing today are just chaos, confusion, panic. Nobody knows who to go with. And it, it's going to unfold like that over the oh. next few days.
And I think emotions are still really raw. I think that's going to be half part of this process, too. So yeah. Republicans are going to have to try and get back together. I mean, there is a lot of anger directed at certainly a, a few members of the Republican conference right now. Yeah. And, you know, I obviously have heard a lot about a lot of colorful things said about Matt Gates, But again, the numbers being what they are, the new speaker uh, needs, you know, he, he needs to try to figure out a way forward with Matt mm -hmm. Gates. Matt Gates acted alone, but he didn't vote alone. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's great to talk about. I've heard, you know, you've heard all kinds of things. He's going to be expelled from the conference. He's going to be booted off committees. Uh, McCarthy left some breadcrumbs for reporters last night about his ethics problems. You know, mm -hmm. retribution like that, once, to your point, once cooler heads prevail for now, sometimes retribution like that, it comes down the line in a couple months in little different forms. But uh, it, it's hard to see why any person who's trying to be speaker would want to uh, would want to protract uh, those issues at this point. So I'll finish with this. And that's yeah. if this does linger beyond next week. Is there a scenario in which we have almost a coalition type speaker that, you know, gets a mix of Republicans and Democrats in kind of a unity government house, equal seats on, on committees or anything like that? Or is that sort of just so far afield from anything that, that could really happen, uh, given our, our current makeup in the House? I at this point, I do think it's sort of fantastical to think about things like that. I think that. Um, I just don't think Republicans, even Matt, Matt Gates, Republicans in the world would want uh, that kind of agreement. Obviously, Democrats would uh, want a high price. But mm -hmm. I do think you could see uh, these sort of ad hoc coalitions emerge on things like Ukraine funding. You could easily see mm -hmm. some, we, this is a whole other conversation, but you could easily see some kind of discharge petition, try to force a bill to the floor that funds Ukraine, because even though there are 300 votes for that, most of the House Republicans voted against it. And so uh, I think you could see small coalitions break out on certain issues. Uh, I, I do think that's very possible, but I, I have a hard time making the jump yet to uh, sort of, we see that, I know we see that in states sometimes where that happens. Yeah. It happened in New York, I remember. But uh, I, uh, the again, think about, again, there's the, think about the, the lack of trust right now. I mean, I, I saw that the Republicans and the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is the moderate caucus, are mad at the Democrats for voting against McCarthy. So even the moderates, who usually have the most trust each other, don't don't trust each other right now. So I think it's a leap, but I think some pretty weird, weird stuff could happen here. So we could all <laughs> buckle up for sure. That's uh, certainly one way to put it. Mike, appreciate your time, especially your institutional knowledge on this. Good to talk to you again and uh, have a great weekend. Thanks. You too, Jared. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Vladimir Zelensky may have left the United States last month cautiously optimistic about 
future funding as what remains dwindles. Then House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who said he had questions for the Ukrainian president, said Zelensky responded to his concerns, including some about corruption. Well, McCarthy is speaker no more. After a vote to push him out following budget negotiations that kept us from a government shutdown, if only for 45 days. That short term stopgap solution called a CR or continuing resolution did not include additional money for Ukraine. President Biden told reporters this past week. It does worry me, but I know there are a majority of members of the House and Senate in both parties who have said that they support funding Ukraine. With your, uh, I'm going to be announcing very shortly a major speech I'm going to make on this issue and why it's critically important for the United States and our allies that we keep our commitment. But once McCarthy was gone, one of the first congressmen who said he wanted to take his place was Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. Jordan was asked this week if he would support additional funding for Ukraine. I'm against that. Uh, What I understand is at some point we're going to have to deal with this appropriation process in the right way. And we're going to try to do that in the next, what what are we down to, 41 days. Um, The most pressing issue on Americans' mind is not Ukraine. It is the border situation and it is crime on the streets. On Thursday of this past week, Zelensky posted a series of videos of himself meeting and shaking hands with France's Emmanuel Macron, Germany's Olaf Scholz, UK's Rishi Sunak, and the President of Europe's Parliament. He also posted a three-and-a-half-minute-long video addressing Ukrainians directly, saying there will be air defense systems and artillery, as he thanked the leaders of all the European countries with whom he met, saying the supplies are crucial as we approach winter. There is clearly a majority in both chambers, um, majority Republicans and Democrats in the House and in the Senate, all support continued aid to Ukraine. Kurt Volker is former ambassador to NATO. Um, It is a minority, a very vocal, active, and small minority that doesn't. But the votes are all there. And then we have the situation of the um, voting down the Speaker of the House, the need to select a new Speaker, and the need to deal with the bigger budget issue, which is, uh, you know, six weeks of continuing resolution will require that there be more focus on the budget again. So I think we have to look at these as separate issues. Uh, The first one is the budget overall and the institutional leadership in the House. Once that's sorted out, then I think we come back to the question of U.S. assistance. And there, I think there is a strong majority in support. As far as the rest of the world goes, I was just in Europe for uh, about a week or so. I met with a variety of different officials in Central and Eastern and Western Europe. And there's deep concern about the U.S. uh, military uh, support to Ukraine diminishing because um, they can't replace it fully themselves. They're doing a lot. Uh, the Poles, Brits, the French, Germans, everybody's doing a lot. We've got German tanks and you know, we've got Danes and Norwegians and Dutch providing F-16s next year. We've got long range missiles from the UK and France. So they're doing a lot uh, and they're doing even more financially. The, the amount of EU aid pledged is now more than double the US aid. But the U.S. has a scale of military support that the EU doesn't have. So there is a concern about about that. And they are starting to think through. Let me let me ask you that, actually, just to follow up on that. You Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat, said in an interview this past week, we've spent 70 billion roughly to support Ukraine, he said. But our European and global partners have actually spent more than that. And he said we need them to stay in this fight. 
but they're only going to continue that supply line if they know the United States is committed as well. That struck me. Is that true? Europe is much closer to Ukraine, obviously, geographically, and in much more peril should Putin go beyond Ukraine. Will they really only commit? Will Europe really only commit more money and resources if we do? No, I don't think that's right, to be honest. Uh, Just coming, as I said, just coming back from Europe and meetings with a lot of people from the European Union, um, from different EU countries, from Central and East European countries, I think it's slightly different than that. Uh, They understand that Russia's war against Ukraine is a war against all of us, that it's not because um, of their geography. It's because of their identity of Ukrainian Mm. independent sovereign country that has its own rights, its own freedoms, its own democracy, and its desire to integrate in the European Union. Russia is an imperial country and an authoritarian country that views those freedoms as a threat. And if they are successful in Ukraine, they won't stop there. And I think Europe perceives that very clearly, that if they're, if Russia is not stopped in Ukraine, we have to start worrying about the Baltic states. We have to wor- start worrying about Finland. We worry about the Balkans. We see Russian machinations in Moldova and in Georgia. So um, they understand that it's a bigger issue that affects everybody. In the U.S., I don't think that's often explained very well. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but to that point, um, a European ambassador in Washington told CNN, um, that anti-Ukrainian forces in Europe will, quote, rear their heads if the U.S. doesn't continue to fund Ukraine. In other words, that U- Europe's afraid that American politics could trickle into their politics. Is, is that is that the explanation for the fear here? Well, I think in, in that regard, I would say there is some merit to that because there are such forces in Europe as well, but they are less vocal, less influential, uh, less important than here in the U.S. Uh, And I think that in European countries, for the most part, they can manage things. We obviously have uh, a new government in Slovakia and the government in Hungary that are skeptical of aid to Ukraine. But all of the other EU governments are very much in favor. And I don't think are going to be threatened by any of those uh, nationalist forces that would arise. And indeed, I want to highlight the case of Italy because um, Italy has a very right of center government, but one that has nonetheless been very strongly supportive of Ukraine and pushing back on Russia and supporting sanctions on Russia. And I think the prime minister Maloney has actually charted out a path where a lot of the center right would like to be in Europe rather than an extreme blow it all up position Mm. to actually have a more responsible position with respect to European interests and yet be in power at the same time. Um, You know, some Democrats are also saying that that Putin is just waiting for 2024, hoping a Republican will win. Um, and that and I think Senator back to Senator Murphy, I think he said that it, it, that Putin believes that if a Republican wins, that it's Ukraine funding will diminish even further and then he can win the war. Is that just a political talking point or is is that accurate that that, you know, this person is waiting for a, what he sees as a better opportunity? Uh, it's it's one of those um, logic problems or logic tests, because you can say, oh, Putin's not going to do anything before the 24 elections. That's true. But that does not mean that he will seek to make peace and settle things down after the 24 elections. Um, it, Putin's mm. position here is actually quite consistent. 
He wants to eliminate Ukraine as a national identity and take it over and use military force as needed to do so. He's not able to. He's failing at this. But that is what he wants to do. And he's not going to change what he wants, whether Biden or Trump or somebody else gets elected. He's going to be continuing to try to do the same thing. Talk to me a little bit more about this fear or this idea that he might go beyond Ukraine, um, like you were talking about the, the national identities of, of other countries, the Baltics, the Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania. We, we've seen back for decades now that he's made comments like the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, right, was the falling apart of the Soviet Union um, and, and many other comments. Is it, is it a, how realistic, how real a threat is it that he goes beyond Ukraine if he can? Now, we have to take it incredibly seriously because he keeps talking about it. And he's very consistent about it. Um, he has compared himself to Catherine the Great and Peter the Great. He's called himself an accumulator of Russian lands. He believes that everything he has you know, conquered in Ukraine is actually Russian. He doesn't believe that Ukraine exists as a national identity. He says, no, they're actually confused Russians. Uh, he has occupied parts of Georgia, 20% of the country, since 2008. Uh, forces, Russian forces occupy part of Moldova as well. He has talked about Kazakhstan as a place where, you know, it's really Russian in the north, all those Russian speakers and that vast territory. That's really Russian. When you talk about things like the Russian Empire and then and, and Catherine the Great, um, you have to remember that the Baltic states and Finland were annexed into the Russian Empire in the late 1700s, early 1800s, at pretty much the same time as Crimea. And if he's adopting this position that, oh, Crimea is always Russian, then he would adopt the same position with these other states as well. Well, really, they're always Russian. They, you know, they, they've had their flings with independence, but they're part of our, our empire, part of our sphere of influence. And I think those countries, uh, being very small states nestled right up there against Russia, are very worried about this. And remember what we first saw in Ukraine. It wasn't the full-scale invasion. Um, that came later. What we first saw in Ukraine was hybrid warfare, where he would use intelligence forces and soldiers without insignia to take over administrative buildings, grab pieces of territory, and then see how the West reacts. And I think we have to be on guard for the sort of hybrid attacks against other countries if he is able mm. to stabilize his position in Ukraine and move on. As we speak, Vladimir Putin is speaking. Um, as I'm sure you know, and he's he's talking a, a bit as we are talking. He's talking a bit about uh, nuclear weapons. He's saying, you know, why should we change our nuclear doctrine? Our our adversaries know our capabilities. Um, but he's also talking up a little bit about about those capabilities. He says on calls for resumption of of nuclear tests that we've successfully tested a, a one strategic missile, and I'm not even going to bother to try and pronounce the the name of it. Um, but but regardless, one of the key points he, he made at the beginning of his speech was, and I'll read it here, he said, Moscow's mission is to create a new world, blaming Western hegemony for his almost 20 month offensive in Ukraine. We are tasked essentially with building a new a new world. What do you make of the comments? Well, two things. The last part of that is exactly what we've just been talking about, is that he is trying to rebuild the Russian Empire. And he believes that there are pieces that should be just enfranchised into Russia and pieces over which Russia should have dominion. And either way, it's all building that new world. That's what he wants to do. 
and he has to be stopped. There, there's no other way. Uh, all of these free, independent people are going to be suffering and being attacked and having to defend themselves unless we stop him. Uh, we've seen this movie before. Um, the, the first part of that, talking about nuclear weapons, is deliberately designed to get the West to be cautious. He wants to get inside our heads to think that, oh, this is very dangerous. We have to be careful. Maybe we should not help these countries as much as we are because we don't want to face nuclear weapons. Whether he would actually use nuclear weapons, I seriously doubt. Uh, I think it would be devastating for Russia to do so. And I think not only he knows that, but his military knows that. So I think it's unlikely. But he uses the, the, the bluster talking about nuclear weapons to try to influence Western policy. So finally, then, on back to funding. And, and you referenced it. The president said on Wednesday. Before we go to funding, I'm sorry, can I just add one more point? on? That? Of course. Um, on the nuclear issue, one thing we should remember is the only thing we know works is deterrence. If, if we stop trying to deter nuclear use, then we become hostages to the possibility of nuclear use. What is and deterrence? That is a much more dangerous world. What, what is deterrence? Deterrence is the willingness to push back, to fight back against any nuclear use, not necessarily by nuclear means. Uh, but we have to let Russia know that a strategic nuclear attack on the U.S. or NATO, they, they will be destroyed as a country if they do that. And any other nuclear use, even tactical on the battlefield, will be met with very firm military response because we cannot live in a world where nuclear weapons are brandished around that way. Yeah, one of the things Putin said, it flashed over on the wires, was that um, no one would dare use nuclear weapons against Russia. Um, so maybe that's maybe that's in, in kind to your comment. Uh, he's just finally, trying to deter. He's trying to deter. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I, yeah. Um, so, but but just back to funding briefly, and then I'll let you go. Um, you know, the president said on Wednesday, I'm going to make the argument that it's overwhelmingly in the interest of the United States of America that Ukraine succeed. Um, there, there's been some criticism that he hasn't done that. There is a, there's criticism among conservatives that we should not be spending one sent more on this. We've got our own problems at home and that Ukraine, um, you know, without casting aspersions necessarily or, or without like saying you have a, a dog in the fight, Russia, or Ukraine, they're saying Ukraine's not worth it, that it's too corrupt. What do you, I got that. That's a, a loaded question, right? There's a lot in there, but to the president's point that he's going to make this case, will he be able to convince those who are just adamant that we should not be sending any more money to Ukraine. Well, I hope so. He's never going to convince the, the, the far right extremists, you know, those who are against it because they just want to be against it. I don't think you'll ever convince them. But I think it's incredibly important to make a case over their heads to the American people about why this is an American national interest, not, not just charity for Ukraine, but a, a measure of self-preservation when we think of ourselves as part of a community of free people in the world. Uh, if we don't do this now and help Ukraine defeat Russian forces and get its territory back, we will be involved in conflict in the future directly. And we don't want to be there. And so I hope that he's able to make a strong case, not only on values, although it's partly values, but also on our just hardcore national interests that we're going to be facing a... Um, a revived and rebuilt and rejuvenated Russian threat in Europe in the future uh, if we don't get this stopped now. 
And we're going to see a China that is not going to take U.S. will and resolve seriously if we just turn turn tail on Ukraine. Uh, so I think we have big stakes in this that need to be explained. And I'm glad the president is taking the case to the public in the, in the way they've promised to do so. Involved directly, Kurt, because of Article 5 of NATO, that that yes, that, that would be OK. Well, in, but. Yes, that's right. Involved directly because of Article 5 of NATO, we're committed to help defend NATO allies if they're attacked. But why do we have NATO? We have NATO because we realize at the end of World War II that if we don't stand together as free and democratic people in the world, then the likes of Hitler and Stalin can attack one by one and succeed. So that's why you have a collective defense alliance, so that it is too big for anybody to attack successfully. And I think we shouldn't bemoan the fact that we're in that. We should be happy because that is what has preserved peace in Europe for over 70 years. Uh, We now see a situation where a country that's not in NATO, Ukraine, is being attacked by Russia and and Russia's trying to absorb Ukraine. And we didn't deter that attack because they weren't a member. But if we don't help them, then we will be in the situation where we're going to see a Putin and even a Xi tempted to use aggression again because they think we don't have the will to stop it. Former NATO Ambassador Kurt Volker, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, we'll talk about what all went down in the House this week and what happens next with a new speaker vote. And will there be another presidential candidate to choose from other than who the two parties pick. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 